Hello, and welcome to Eddie Hurst's podcast version of The War of the Worlds, the podcast where we take a look at one man's attempt to learn to ride a bike thwarted by an alien invasion. Dan Martin! So, what have we got this week? Well, we've got chapter 11 at the window. What? What's that window going to be like? I know it's Victorian literature, so I wouldn't be surprised if, 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 if an author did commit a whole chapter to writing about the details of the window pane and the wood and the grain and that, but that's not how Wells works, baby. No! And, in fact, we get an introduction of one of the most famous characters from the book. It is, of course, the... Artilleryman. Who better for the role than the fabulous comedian and actor Tony Wright? You'll be hearing from him a little bit later on. We also talk about Diggerland, which is great for me, because I love any excuse to talk about Diggerland. You'll find out about that later. We've also got a great song, which is a surf rock dedication to all those soldiers that get wiped out. So, we'll get right into it. Please, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at edyhurst. That's also where the podcast news goes. You can get in touch with me at eddiehurst at gmail.com if you have any burning private questions. And if not, let me know what you're enjoying. Let me know what you want to hear. I can I can take requests. I will take them. I might just put them in the bin. Or I might go, hey, that's a great idea. I mean, that's, that's life, isn't it? That's a risk we all take when we go out on a limb to, to communicate with somebody. Uh, please do, if this is the first episode you're listening to, subscribe, rate five stars and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts from. And if, if this is your first one, you're on chapter 11. You've missed a lot. Can I catch you up? Uh, yes, I will. Okay, so, guys try to learn how to ride a bike. A comet comes from Earth. Ogilvy goes, oh, I think that's a bit funny. They go have a look at it in Horsell Common and then all of a sudden there's a big fanfare around there. It turns out that it's a big cylinder. Inside the cylinder there's a greasy little Martian thing. He gets out, everyone goes, oh my god, this is a creepy Martian. They run away, they talk about getting the army in. The army don't actually turn up at that point. The Martian, it turns out that there's more than one in there. They get out a little mirror that's a heat ray. That burns some people. That's pretty scary. They don't enjoy that. The narrator, he runs away. He tries to get to his wife and tells her, we gotta get out of here. The wife goes, oh, do we have to? They say yes. They go, where to? Leatherhead, a comfortable two whole miles away. He borrows a car from a landlord. They take the car from the landlord to Leatherhead. He takes the car back to the landlord. He books the car beyond recognition. And then it turns out anyway, the landlord says, so kind of what's up for him. Then he goes home because he's so stressed rather than going to see his wife. He kills up in a ball that says, and that's where we're up to. So get ready. And here we go. Chapter 11. At the window. I have already said that my storms of emotion have a trick of exhausting themselves. Times the narrator so far has had his emotions exhaust themselves. One, when he fell asleep in that pile of bricks by the factory. Two, when he had to take a bath for two and a half hours. Three, when he left his wife and got super horny for fighting the Martians. After a time I discovered that I was cold and wet, and with little pools of water about me on the stair carpet. I got up almost mechanically, went into the dining room, and drank some whiskey. Hashtag priorities, After I had done that, I went upstairs to my study. But why I did so, I do not know. The window on my study looks over the trees and the railway towards Horsell Common. In the hurry of our departure, this window had been left open. I mean, to be fair, there's bigger fish to fry than leaving the windows open, isn't there? We've got to leave for the Martians, but if you dare, leave a window open! The passage was dark, and, by contrast with the picture, the window frame enclosed, the side of the room seemed impenetrably dark. I stopped short in the doorway. The thunderstorm had passed. The towers of the Oriental College and the pine trees about it had gone. And very far away lit by a vivid red glare. The common about the sandpits was visible. Across the light, huge black shapes, grotesque and strange, moved busily to and fro. It's 
Martians in it. It seemed indeed as if the whole country in that direction was on fire. A broad hillside set with minute tongues of flame, swaying and writhing with the gusts of the dying storm and throwing a red reflection upon the cloud scud above. Every now and then, a haze of smoke from some nearer conflagration. Conflagration? What is that? Conflagration? I'll take over from here. Hey, stop playing, lads. Sorry, I'm just in a punk band because I'm still a teenager and that's the sort of thing I do. Yeah, we're not really a big deal. We just got the headline gig at the local pub. Yeah, we're what you call wicked or sick or bad. Anyway, Conflagration is actually the name of our band. It means like a really destructive big fire that's going to swallow up this earth. All right, I got to get back to practice. Okay, three, two, one, go! Drove across the window and hid the Martian shapes. I could not see what they were doing, nor the clear form of them, nor recognize the black objects they were busied upon. Neither could I see the nearer fire, though the reflections of it danced on the wall and ceiling of the study. A sharp, resinous tang of burning was in the air. That was actually the name of our band before we changed it to Conflagration. So, Resinous Tang, it's like a tar-like sort of resin, bit, bit grossy sort of in the air. Does that make sense? Like, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of like a tar-like, like a resin, like, like a gro- gross, gross chemical thing. Okay, my solo. I closed the door noiselessly and crept towards the window. As I did so, the view opened out until, on the one hand, it reached to the houses about Woking Station, and on the other to the charred blackened pine woods of Byfleet. There was a light down below the hill, on the railway, near the arch, and several of the houses along the Maybury Road and the street near the station were glowing ruins. The light upon the railway puzzled me at first, there were a black heap and a vivid glare, and to the right of that a row of yellow oblongs. Then I perceived this was a wrecked train, the foreparts smashed and on fire, the hinder carriages still upon the rails. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty, pretty badass, in it? That's like, if you, if you think about the imagery for it, because that's like the big Victorian transportation of the time, you know, it like, it started properly uh, bringing people around the country in 1830 from the Liverpool train to Manchester, and then it became day-to-day life, it changed everything, so to see that sort of, that is your day-to-day transport just sliding on the side, that's all, that's pretty, pretty, pretty gnarly, man. Maybe I'm listening to the explaining lad too much this episode. Between these three main centres of light, the houses, the train and the burning county towards Chobham, stretched irregular patches of dark country, broken here and there by intervals of dimly glowing and smoking ground. Ladies and gentlemen, the current production of Cats will take a short interval of dimly glowing and smoking ground. Thank you. It was the strangest spectacle. That black expanse set with fire. It reminded me, more than anything else, of the potteries at night. At first I could distinguish no people at all, though I peered intently for them. Later I saw, against the light of Woking Station, a number of black figures hurrying one after another across the line. And this was the little world in which I'd been living securely for years. This fiery chaos! What had happened in the last seven hours I still did not know. Nor did I know 
though I was beginning to guess, the relation between these mechanical colossi and the sluggish lumps I had seen disgorged from the cylinder. With a queer feeling of impersonal interest, I turned my desk chair to the window, sat down, and stared at the blackened country, and particularly at the three gigantic black things that were going to and fro in the glare about the sandpit. They seemed amazingly busy. I began to ask myself what they could be. Were they intelligent mechanisms? Such a thing I felt was impossible. Or did a Martian sit within each? Ruling, directing, using. Much as a man's brain sits and rules his body. I mean, I think it's important to say at this point, to sort of like put it in context at the time, this idea is pretty, pretty like breathtaking. Like it's, it's not as if somebody couldn't imagine it, but you know, in your day-to-day life, a train was probably the most likely bit of machinery you'd, you'd, you'd sit into. And that wasn't going like massively fast and, and cars weren't really a thing back then, and even the cars that were were they're kind of kind of crappy cars. The cars that you saw at, at this time, they were very much in the experimental phase. So the most likely interaction somebody would have with a machine to use is something like maybe maybe a machinery at a factory or, or something like that. So so really, the the idea of an individual bit of machinery that's a bit like a tank that had three legs that you could use to operate that's 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 very sophisticated for the time that the HG was is writing in, and, and, and there isn't really any any joke here just just uh, it's, it's something in it have a think about that you had a you had a think about it thinking about it all right good i began to compare the things to human machines to ask myself for the first time in my life how an ironclad or a steam engine would seem to an intelligent lower animal the storm had left the sky clear and over the smoke of the burning land, the little fading pinpoint of Mars was dropping into the west when a soldier came into my garden. I heard a slight scraping at the fence, and rousing myself from the lethargy that had fallen upon me, I looked down and saw him dimly, clambering over the palings. At the sight of another human being, my torpor passed, and I leaned out of the window eagerly. Okay, so torpor is actually the name of the first song of my band. It goes a little like this. One, two, three, four. A state of physical or mental inactivity. That means you've got the torpor, baby. Hissed, I said in a whisper. He stopped astride of the fence in doubt. Then he came over and across the lawn to the corner of the house. He bent down and stepped softly. The role of Artillery Man will be played by Tony Wright. So, I just wanted to run by some of your credentials for the role. So, have you ever experienced existential despair? Um, uh, yes, pretty much twice a week. Oh, perfect. Okay, so that's a big tick there. Um, has that despair <laughs> been as a result of a Martian invasion? I, I I can't say yes, because I feel like perhaps if it did happen, they might have wiped my memory. Oh, ooh, that's good. Po- All right, well, I'll give you half a point then. Yeah. Have you ever operated heavy machinery? I once sat on a forklift for a little bit. I never actually turned it on. Yeah, that <laughs> Okay. Oh, I, I, I went to Diggerland once for my birthday. Um, I just thought I'd pop in at this point and explain what Diggerland is, uh, especially to any listeners who aren't from the UK. You might not be aware of it, but it is a franchise of theme parks. There's four of them across our quite small country dedicated to the British people's favourite heavy machinery, the JCB Digger. 
Oh, amazing. What was it like? It was loads of fun. So it was just insane. So there's like one ride. I call them rides, but they're they're just literally JCBs. Um, you just move, you move dirt from like one pile into another and you just get to like pull all these levers. It's really good. There was a crane. It just raises you to about 60 feet in the air. Beautiful view. <laughs> you get to drive a Land Rover. They got like one of those like security on-site vehicles. Even though I was like 13 at the time. They, they let you drive it. <laughs> you have an instructor and they're just sort of like, right, let's go. It's great. Have you ever shot a giant military grade cannon? Um, no. Okay, I didn't expect that. I've seen yeah. seen cannons in the flesh. Okay. What's, what's your favourite cannon? Um, ones that they, they put on castles. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's good. That's good. I like yeah, like ones. a row of them. Sort of like five or six. They're just, the best ones. You, know, like, you get to look out at the uh, city yeah, yeah, or whatever's yeah, yeah. nearby and just think, you know what, if I could use this cannon, that'd be gone. That building would be gone in a minute. When I thought of the artilleryman in uh, in War of the Worlds, uh, I thought you'd be the perfect guy for it. Um, you know, because not not only um, not only have you been known to creep around strangers' gardens. Oh, absolutely. It's my favourite pastime. You're also a, a, a fabulous comedian and actor. Uh, and also, you are currently, you hold the title for being the guest that is closest to Woking which is the area where most of this happens. So congratulations for that. Uh, thanks. It's uh, an honour and a privilege. Did you grow up in Kent? Uh, yes, I grew up in uh, sort of in Thanet, which is like a sort of coastal region. Yeah, it's just like little, okay. little coast, coastal towns. Mainly uh, right. Margate is where I grew up. And that is kind of, yeah. yeah, it's the southern equivalent of Blackpool. Two, two P machines, ahoy. Ahoy. So many 2P machines. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you're more than qualified. You know, you're aware of horses. You've seen a cannon. Um, you, 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 emotionally, you're prepared for the for the for the tough going that you'll get. Um, now, the artilleryman is. Um, there's loads of different versions of War of the Worlds, um, which is one of the reasons why I, I have. I I have and I'm developing even more of an obsession with just the War of the World itself. Um, and in it, the artillery man shows up in some form every time as like an army man or something. Um, and the most famous one is: Have you heard of the musical version of the War of the World? Uh, yes. Was this like a? Wasn't it like a West End production or something like that? Okay. L- listen. Brace yourself for this belter. This is funky. The hammering from the pit the pounding of guns grew louder. My fear rose at the sound of someone creeping into the house. Then I saw it was a young artilleryman, weary, streaked with blood and dirt. Anyone here? I'm, I'm a big fan. Right, can, to dissect that, the music was incredible. I'm a big, I'm such a big sort of like funk, disco, soul fan. I love just, just the sound of like a, a groove on a bass guitar. So that was lovely. But then I love that the description of the artilleryman was uh, like a man walks in with blood and dirt. And he's like, so I'm, I'm, I'm picturing someone like who's seen a lot of things. Right. And he's been through so much. And then he, and then he just says, anyone here? <laughs> <laughs> he's so casual. And that's Dave, a guy called David Essex. Um, have you ever heard of it? Uh, yes, I want to say that he was. Was he ever part of like a, a group, like a, a a band, a Bucks Fizz type? He's like that era. He's like a seventies sort of rock-ish pop singer. Um, and and I've got um, I got one of his biggest hits here to give you a listen to, so you can see what he's like. <laughs> there he is. It's that mullet in it. <laughs> That's a 
that's a party mallet. So that's who Jeff Wayne thought. Yeah, this is a dishevelled soldier if ever I saw one. Not at all. Not at all. Right, let's get to it. Who's there? He said, also whispering, standing under the window and peering up. Where are you going? I asked. God knows. Are you trying to hide? That's it. Come into the house. I went down, unfastened the door and let him in unlock the door again. Look, I'm gonna let you in, but I will immediately lock the door so that no other humans can possibly seek refuge in my house. I could not see his face. He was hatless, and his coat was unbuttoned. Oh God, no hat, no coat. We're in the presence of a maniac. My God, he said as I drew him in. What has happened? I asked. What hasn't? In the obscurity, I could see he made a gesture of despair. They wiped us out. Simply wiped us out. He repeated again and again. He followed me, almost mechanically, into the dining room. Take some whiskey, I said, pouring out a stiff dose. He drank it. Then, abruptly, he sat down before the table, put his head on his arms, and began to sob and weep like a little boy, in a perfect passion of emotion, while I with a curious forgetfulness of my own recent despair, stood beside him, wondering. Uh, so, just, uh, how long are you planning on, uh, planning on staying here, buddy? Uh, also, could you try and, could you try and maybe weep on your arms a little bit, on the sleeves of your arms more, because uh, that's, that's mahogany that your tears are staining that. It was a long time before he could steady his nerves to answer my questions. And then he answered perplexingly and brokenly. He was a driver in the artillery and had only come into action about seven. At that time, firing was going on across the common and it was said that the first party of Martians were crawling slowly towards their second cylinder under cover of a metal shield. A small shield, I tell ya, they flummoxed the greatest generals of this nation. Who'd have thought they might have had a small bit of metal to gain cover from? Later, this shield staggered up on tripod legs and became the first of the fighting machines I had seen. The gun he drove had been unlimbered near Horsell in order to command the sandpits, and its arrival it was that precipitated the action. As the limber gunners went to the rear, his horse trod in a rabbit hole and came down, throwing him into a depression on the ground. At the same moment, the gun exploded behind him. The ammunition blew up. There was a fire all about him, and he found himself lying in a heap of charred dead men and horses. I mean, I'm going to be honest, that sounds more like it was his fault than anything to do with the Martians. I lay still, he said. Scared out of my wits with the forequarter of a horse atop of me. We'd been wiped out. Again, we'd been absolutely wiped out. Smelt awful. It smelt like a Wetherspoon's mixed grill. I don't know if we had one of those in those days. There was gammon, there was sausage, there was everything. Stumble, bang, swish, wiped out. Oh, when you're done a day at work, all the mud for a joke, you're wiped out. Oh, when you lost all your lives on a game you can't survive, you're wiped out. If you're in central Tokyo and Godzilla comes on show and Mafra's also there and you got nowhere to go, you're wiped out. Wa
All our ships are fresh, shining up that statues as it's wiped out. When you use your final devil on the handle of a kettle, you're wiped out. There's a mess on the carpet, giving up, trying to blot it, you're wiped out. Wiped out, wiped out. That's what this song's about. All the different ways to shout about being wiped out. Surf's up. And you're on the chopping road, you're wiped out Stuck in rubble and the days from a Martian heat ray, you're wiped out Oh, you can't find your infantry, there's no sight of cavalry Jumping a garden for safety, hide under a safe tree Gotta hope they can't find me, and I shout, I'm wiped out Wiped out! He had hid under the dead horse for a long time Peeping out furtively across the common the cardigan men had tried a rush, in skirmishing order, at the pit, simply to be swept out of existence. Then the monster had risen to its feet and had begun to walk leisurely to and fro across the common among the few fugitives, with its head-like hood turning about exactly like the head of a cowled human being. A kind of arm carried a complicated metallic case, about which green flashes scintillated, and out of the funnel of this there smoked the heat ray. In a few minutes there was, so far as a soldier could see, not a living thing left upon the common. And every bush and tree upon it that was not already a blackened skeleton was burning. The hussars had been on the road beyond the curvature of the ground, and he saw nothing of them. He heard the maxims rattle for a time and then become still. The giant saved Woking Station and its cluster of houses until the last. Then, in a moment, the heat ray was brought to bear, and the town became a heap of fiery ruins. Then, the thing shut off the heat ray, and turning its back upon the artillerymen, began to waddle away towards the smouldering pine woods that sheltered the second cylinder. As it did so, a second glittering titan built itself up out of the pit. I mean, this is, like, really intense, right up until the point where he describes it as waddling away. Oh no, the aliens are attacking in a light waddle! The second monster followed the first, and at that the artillerymen began to crawl very cautiously across the hot heather ash towards Horsell. He managed to get alive into the ditch by the side of the road, and so escaped to Woking. There his story became ejaculatory. The place was impassable. It seems there were a few people alive there, frantic for the most part, and many burned and scalded. He was turned aside by the fire, and hid among some almost scorching heaps of broken wall as one of the Martian giants returned. He saw this one pursue a man, catch him up in one of its steely tentacles, and knock his head against the trunk of a pine tree. 
Alright lads, uh, we're, uh, we, we've got really sophisticated tripods, uh, we've got a heat ray, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is all great stuff, but can you tell me? Yeah, of course, ask me anything. Can you tell me, what are you going to do in close quarter combat? Do you think maybe you could, you could kick or something, or what have you got going on? I'm glad you asked, champ. Well, what we've done is we've got these glittering tentacles, alright? Glittering, nice, love it. And what we're going to do is we're going to grab this guy, and you're going to grab anyone close to you, and you're just going to bump him into a tree. What's a tree? Don't, don't worry about that, you'll see it on it. At last, after nightfall, the artilleryman made a rush for it and got over the railway embankment. Since then, he had been skulking along towards Maybury, in the hope of getting out of danger Londonward. People were hiding in trenches and cellars. And many of the survivors had made off towards Woking and Send. He had been consumed with thirst until he found one of the water mains near the railway arch smashed and the water bubbling out like a spring upon the road. That was the story I got from him, bit by bit. He grew calmer telling me and trying to make me see the things he had seen. He'd eaten no food since midday, he told me early in his narrative, and I found mutton and bread in the pantry and brought it into the room. We lit no lamp for fear of attracting the Martians, and ever and again our hands would touch upon bread or meat. Oh, bit romantic? A uh, little, little candlelit dinner, hands touching each other. As he talked, things about us came darkly out of the darkness, and the trampled bushes and broken rose trees outside the window grew distinct. It would seem that a number of men or animals had rushed across the lawn. I began to see his face, blackened and haggard. No doubt as mine was also. I mean, this is the most romantic connection I mean, this is the most romantic human connection the narrator has had so far in the book. So far, he is absolutely crushing this date. When we had finished eating, we went softly upstairs to my study. And I looked again out of the open window. In one night, the valley had become a valley of ashes. The fires had dwindled now. Where flames had been, there were now streamers of smoke but the countless ruins of shattered and gutted houses and blasted and blackened trees that the night had hidden stood out now gaunt and terrible in the pitiless light of dawn. Yet here and there, some objects had had luck to escape. A white railway signal here, the end of a greenhouse there, white and fresh amid the wreckage. Never before in the history of warfare had destruction been so indiscriminate and so universal, and shining with the growing light of the east, Three of the metallic giants stood about the pit, their cowls rotating as though they were surveying the desolation they had made. It seemed to me that the pit had been enlarged, and ever and again puffs of vivid green vapour streamed up and out of it towards the brightening dawn, steamed up, whirled, broke and vanished. I'm sure that's not remotely important to the story at all. Beyond were pillars of fire about Chobham. They became pillars of bloodshot smoke at the first touch of day. Hey, there we are, guys. Pretty action-packed, right? There's more actions here than after a meeting that has lasted far too long. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. I had a lot of fun making it. Um, I'm not sure if you've noticed, I bought a new voice transformer to do the background noise for, for this episode. Get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. 
at Eddie Hurst. You can find out all the latest news of the podcast and also jokes and videos and what else you might want on the periphery. Thank you very much this week to Tony Wright. Tony, like I said, is a fantastic comedian and actor. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Tony underscore Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T 97. And also he has a fantastic YouTube channel called Somali and Me. The sketches on there are really great. I always enjoy when they release new ones, which is very often because he is a hard-working lad. That felt very condescending, didn't it? So, thank you guys. Please rate, review, and most importantly of all, if you've not already, subscribe. What are you waiting for? We'll have another episode out in about two weeks. Uh, in the meantime, why don't you listen to last week's episode with Simon Guerrier? It's one of the interludes, so it's not part of the part of the narrative we don't read the book in it it was a really interesting chat about hg wells and his life and times and he gave me loads of books to go away and read and i've, I've started reading them and <laughs> i'll be honest uh, uh, I, I just looked in the back of one because it's an index and i thought I'll, I'll look at the word affair and the majority of the book is affairs the majority of the book is affairs so brace yourself for that exciting tangent when we get to it i had a little read of what was coming up in the next chapter ahead of the recording and whew, it is spicy it's spicier than a pasta sauce that you you added too many chili flakes to because you were feeling brave. See you next time on Eddie Hurst's podcast version of The War of the Worlds. Bye! Eddie Hurst's podcast version of The War of the Worlds is created and produced by Eddie Hurst, written by Eddie Hurst and H.G. Wells. Special thanks this week to Tony Wright. You can see him at Tony underscore Wright 97 on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and also watch Somalia Media YouTube videos. Massive thank you to Ichabod Wolf for his fantastic theme tune that we use, which is Fall of Saigon. You can listen to that and download it from Bandcamp, Ichabod Wolf, and often on Fridays they're waiving the fees at the moment to help support the artist. So go do that thank you very much guys you can follow me rate subscribe review five stars please thank you very much at eddie hurst instagram twitter facebook i'll see you in a little bit guys bye 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 bye